Hey everyone, it's Michael. Hey, it's Robert. And this is the Variety Show with Michael and Robert. What are we talking about today, Robert? Today we have four articles. Three of them have quite the cohesion. A lot of it surrounding media, news outlet, and the last one's cast kind of a fun piece that we're just going to talk about. With that, yeah. why don't we just dive in? Yeah, we won't tell you what the fourth one is. You'll have to wait and listen. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to wait and listen. That's how we're going to bait you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Robert. So I think uh, the first article was that one I picked by Ralph DeBelli of Boarding News. Do you want to give us a quick summary? Yeah, this is going to be hard to this is going to be hard to summarize because it was quite a meaty article, Michael. I like the my article. Title, yes, the, t- <laughs> the title of the article is Avoid News Towards a Healthy News Diet. And it's, as Michael said, by Rolf DeBelli. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah. Forgive us, Rolf, if we got it wrong. <laughs> Not to be confused with, with Rolf the Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's interesting. I did a little bit of research on him, so I'll give a little background before I do the summary. But he was a German writer. He's a German writer. He still is. And he wrote The Art of Thinking Clearly. And most recently, he published a book called Stop Reading the News, a manifesto for a happier and calmer and wiser life. And it's a book that is an extension of this article. In this article, he talks about how news is to the mind what sugar is to the body. And he outlines 15 reasons why the news as we consume it today is bad. And he outlines this argument, giving the 15 different ways. I won't go into them because I think it's a little bit long and drawn out. We can talk about those points as they come up. But then he offers a solution and his solution is to go without news. And instead of just reading news and little snippets about the world to instead read deep articles and books that seek to understand and analyze the world's complexity. He also gives a last little conclusion where he says that because even though he says that we should go on a news diet does not mean that journalism, all journalism is bad, but that we need more meaningful journalism that seeks to police our society and uncover the truth, investigative journalism, if you will. And that is the article. Michael, how'd I do? Uh, hey, I think you did pretty good. Uh, it's 11 pages, so I don't blame you for not reading it. Um, <laughs> couple. Uh, okay, I, I know I'm supposed to talk about why I picked it, but a uh, couple notes. It was written in 2010, so this is way before the 2016 election, which I thought was interesting. I actually came across this article in like 2012. Um, does this resonate with you? Like, does this speak to you at all? Or is it like that article from a couple of weeks back where you just don't get it? Oh, essentially. Yeah. I mean, is it, uh, yes. Well, hands down. Yes. When I was reading this, I was just like, yes, I really agree with a lot of these points that he's making. One thing that I did not particularly like about this article he makes a lot of claims and he gives a lot of anecdotal evidence, which I do resonate with and relate to, but he doesn't give a lot of studies. I think there's only maybe one or two times where he actually cites a study to back up the claims that he makes, but most of it is an anecdotal. Now, I didn't go into the research. I didn't do more research on whether there are studies to support it, 
But I imagine that there are, because especially since the 2016 election and you know the past four years and even with COVID, there has been a huge spotlight on the news and how it affects individuals. So I can imagine that there might not have been studies in 2010, but there are probably studies now. Yeah, it almost seems like the back of my hand, like all this stuff seems just so obvious now. Um, one thing that I was thinking about when I was reading this was, and I think we might have talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the origin of the term media. So media is the plural of the word medium. And the medium is basically the the thing through with the lens through which we see the world. Like, for instance, living in Texas, I have no idea what's going on in Canada. I am not in Canada. Therefore, I couldn't tell you what's going on in Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, wherever. So I rely on this, essentially, this nebulous force to report on what's happening there. Um, So unless it's a perfect medium, there's going to be some fracturing that occurs there. I think it's almost impossible. Sorry, keep going. No, no, yeah, go. I was going to say... I think along those lines, it's almost impossible to have a perfect medium because inevitably there are so many different stories and so many different things that you can report on or research about, but there's only so much time in the day and there's only so much that you can actually read and digest. So inevitably there is going to be a bias toward which articles or which stories that you want to focus on. And what you leave out. That makes sense, right? Because if I'm if I'm the journalist or the blogger or whatever, and I'm writing about my perception of what's happening in my city, it's just my small slice of what's happening in my local city, right? It's not yeah. everybody's. I, I'm not writing on behalf of everybody who lives here. And if I do, the reader should take that into account, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's my per- there's my perception bias as well as the bias of the person who's writing or reading, depending on what my role is in this metaphor. So I, I think that's really interesting. I, I know you said you didn't want to you didn't want to go through all 15 of his points, but I just wanted to hit a couple of key ones. Sure. Uh, I think the the ones at the beginning of the article article are much stronger. I haven't read it in a couple of years, but it sounded like at the end a couple of them get redundant. But essentially. His first point is that news misleads us systematically, and I don't know if he's necessarily trying to say that it's intentional, but what he's trying to say is they report on things, they don't report on things with the same frequency which they occur in nature. They recur, re- report on things based on, like, the kind of reaction or views or clicks that they're going to get. So, like, for instance, a classic example of this is if a plane falls out of the sky, they're going to report on it. So that means you might have like 5% of your articles be about planes falling out of the sky, but do 5% of all planes fall out of the sky? Absolutely not. Then no, nobody would ever fly. Right. So like (laughs) whether they, you know, intend to side, whether they intend to mislead us, they do just because of that availability heuristic. Uh, The second thing that was really interesting to me was the irrelevancy of news. Uh, Now, right now we're, we're in the pandemic and the there's two major themes of news across the last two years. So it's a little bit different now, but can like, think back, can you think of like the two or major two, two or three major headlines immediately before March of 2020? 
that were in the news? Hmm. That's that's a good one. That's I I cannot recall. I cannot recall. Other than all the news, the Trump news, um, the big thing was the Australian fires. Fire. Ah, that yeah. that rings a bell now. That rings a bell. Yeah. The only reason I remember it, uh, I didn't look it up, but the only reason I remember it is because it was immediately before COVID. I couldn't tell you what's before that. <laughs> um, the other thing that this article makes me appreciate is attention as a limited resource. Again, this mm. is something that seems obvious to me now in 2021. But I think when I first read this in 2012, I never like I thought of my time as a limited resource and, of course, money. But I don't think I ever consciously thought of attention as like a limited resource. This was probably like in the depths of the maximum amount of time I was spending on social media at this age, too. I would have been like 22. What do you think about that? Do you do you think about attention as a resource? I didn't used to, but now I do. But and I also think that attention is directly related to. Well, I was gonna say time, but I don't think that's the case. I think since I was a manager and I had to multi, or I was forced to multitask, that's when I started to really make the connection that, and attention is a finite resource, and that context switching. No matter how much people say, "Oh, it's really great to be a multitasker," it's really terrible. It's really hard <laughs> to get things done, to think deliberately about problems, about topics, to analyze, to give your brain that time to really focus if you're constantly switching between tasks. 100% agree. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I wanted um, to ask you, Michael, you know, you read this and you said you read this in 2012. How has your perspective of this article change from you know, 2012 to now you see you read it 2012 yeah so like when i first read it in 2012 so that would have been nine years ago i kind of took it at face value now i read it with a little more nuance i think as things have changed over the last decade you know in my personal life not to mention in the, the way we approach media in general there's a lot more to be said about this kind of stuff including a lot more nuance um like when he talks about at the end at the very end after he's made all his 15 points or whatever is why there's still hope essentially like or like if you if you read news to be informed then just let your friends inform you but what i think about now is like like what does it mean to be informed are my friends who and family who read the news the ones who are most informed in my life um i would argue these days Probably not, although I would have said differently in 2012, because I feel like my, like, I can tell who's really plugged into the news these, these days, because they're the most frantic people in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or it, it's like people take on the personality of whatever they read. Like, you really like Wired. And so, like, I don't pick up on the frantic vibe from you, but I definitely pick up on the, like, curious, maybe technologically leaning aptitude or curiosity from you what do you think well okay so for one on that point getting the, that was something that i maybe in 2012 i would have been more like oh, okay that makes sense if you take a news diet then you know you can rely on your friends and family 
to fill you in on the news. But thinking about it now and how we've talked more about echo chambers, it's interesting that you mentioned the wire thing, but that if you rely on a certain news source and you seek out only those people that are closest to you to inform you, you're kind of creating an own insulated bubble. Because he talks about how your friends and family will know what news is going to be relevant to you, right? So they'll share it with you. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't leave room for maybe facts or analysis or stories that are different from yours, like different from your world perspective. So you create an echo chamber. You create an echo chamber in yourself if you were to just rely on your friends and family um, all the time for news. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I've heard that about Facebook and how like the internet is so personalized these days that we're all siloed off from each other. It makes me think of this quote by the character Uncle Iroh in Avatar The Last Airbender, where he <laughs> says, I forget the exact quote, wisdom must be acquired from multiple places because wisdom acquired from a single source becomes brittle and stale. Mm. I do. I, really I remember like that. that episode. That was really good. Yeah, I really like that. Um, okay. Uh, what do you think? Time maybe to move on to the second one? Yeah, I think the next one is going to segue right into this one about news and media and kind of. It's yeah, it's a, it's a Freakonomics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Freakonomics podcast episode called why is the u.s media so negative it came out within the last year so it's much more recent relative to today compared to the article from 2010 uh, Stephen dubner's the podcast host and he brings on this economist uh, doctor or professor says sazardote and the way the article is structured it's just, it's it's around that context of like why the media is so bad or so negative in the United States, but Dubner frames it around Sazerdote's research. So they start off by talking about like how much of the media today, like is the media today actually negative? And Sazerdote goes on to say that like, there's this dichotomy between like, is the media fact-based or is the media just like wallowing in negative things that are going on in the world? They talk a little bit about how it differentiates based on like where you're getting it from, because the media is not just social media. It's not just the cable news. It's not just newspapers. Yeah, I think newspapers still exist. I don't know. It's a combination of all those things. And he talks about how while you know, it's pretty obvious that the, the budgets for newspapers has gone down and as budgets go down, less staff, less time, less resources to make quality news. But alternatively, cable news networks are actually making more money than ever. Um, so the argument that like the news isn't as high quality because there are less funds available may hold true for written journalism, but it doesn't necessarily hold true for like CNN, for example. So then it goes on to talk about you know, the, classic, um, the classic aphorism, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, they talk a little bit about some of the negative terms like appalling, nefarious, barbaric, as well as the positive terms, applaud, appreciate, gaining, and winnable. And where the first article we talked about maybe t was anecdotal, this one talks about how these words have been studied to have 
either more or less pull on our psyche as humans. Um, negative words tend to have more pull. Um, the context of the article, just based on the timing, is is primarily based on studies done around COVID coverage. And, and the benefit of that, Dubner says, is they, you know, if COVID cases go up or down, it's pretty objective whether or not that news is positive or negative. Down, you would think, oh, that's positive news. There might be more positive news, hypothetically. If it's up, if cases are up, you might think, oh, more bad news is going to be out there. But what they actually saw was whether COVID cases were severely up or severely down, it was consistently negative. Maybe like <laughs> marginally less negative when cases were going down, but nothing appreciably different. So before I summarize the rest of the article, let's just pause there for a second. So why did you pick this one? I picked this one because it definitely seemed like that. I actually took a hiatus from going on CNN every single day and filling my mind with whatever articles were on there about a year ago. And my outlook has been more rosy, I would say. <laughs> Not as negative or defeatist or hopeless. And that could be because of you know, certain political forces or, you know, what type of media I am consuming now. But it really resonated with me because I was like, you know what? Is the news really that negative? I mean, why was I feeling so negative when I was consuming it every single day? And so that's why I brought this one up. I also brought this up because I saw a lot of cohesion and chemistry with the other articles that you presented. <laughs> Fair, fair. And I thought that it would give a really interesting context to all those other articles in relation to each other. Yeah. That's yeah. So I, I got one question for you. Um, one sure. thing he goes on to say in the episode is the onslaught of negative coverage in the news. Let's let's talk about cable news for a second. We talked a second ago about how it seems to be independent of what's happening in society. So regardless of what's happening around you, there's the appearance that things are only going to get more and more negative. And they, they go on to say that that gives people a lack of perceived agency. Like, why would I even do anything? Because it's only going to be negative. The world's only going to get worse. The world's continuing to get worse. Why even try? Do you pick up on any of that when you watch the news? I don't pick it up from, this is all anecdotal, but I don't pick it up from when I watch the news. I pick it up from people who watch the news a lot. When I talk to people that watch the news a lot, and I think you mentioned this briefly, that you can tell the difference between people who are plugged into the news all the time or the 24-7 news media cycle versus those that don't. There's a franticness. And for me, there's also a, hopelessness in a sense and a very negative outlook on the world now maybe some of that is justified but a general lack of hopelessness i would say is is a big one that i that i view and it of people who consume the news on a regular basis or cable news let's just say that let's specify 
do you think okay so i got a couple follow-up questions so then when you turn off the news are you more hopeful it's not an immediate effect i would say i would say you have to go on a diet like the previous article that we discussed about so if, if like let's just say after you turn off the news you know let's say you've been ingesting a pretty scrumptious news diet for a while (laughs) and then you just go cold turkey with time as time passes are you more likely to feel better about the world worse about the world or indeterminately better or worse Hmm. that's a good question in my experience i would say indeterminately good or bad okay Uh, the reason i I ask is because i think i feel better and for me like it almost create let's say you feel neutral or and not worse or better if news is supposed to inform you but you feel better when you are quote not informed is the answer then just to turn off the news because that doesn't seem like a perfect answer either then because if the media is something that gives us all this shared narrative what happens if we take away that shared narrative I think there needs to be a distinction made between the 24-hour news media cycle and consuming the news in a moderate fashion. Elaborate. I think you can, I think that the 24-7 news media cycle suffers from not having enough to talk about. And if the goal, and I think this is part of the podcast that you might have left out is that they talk about how yes cable news makes a lot of money but why do they make a lot of money they make a lot of money because they thrive on pessimism because breaking news will keep people glued to the television versus happy go lucky news um and i think they cite they they cite the the case study where Local news, which has a different agenda, they go out, they go out of business far quicker and there's not enough revenue being produced for them to stay in business than cable news, which is the 24-7 media cycle. Uh, We we got a key race alert from Wolf Blitzer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, And the way they talk about the psychology of it too, how it keeps us on edge and it feeds this part of our brain that negativity heightens our emotional state and keeps us attentive and alert. Um, the thing so, that resonated with me from what you said is 20, the difference between 24-hour news and then like news ad hoc or as necessary. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks to... I, I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to transition to the third article yet, although it sounds like I may be. Um, basically... It seems to me like news today is a term is most accurate for like what actually news is as a product today. News essentially is whatever the most recent thing is because they for 20 in the era of 24 hours, 24 seven news, they depend on a replenishing well of content and the best, easiest, most replenishing well of content that's going to replace itself and not rely on a lot of work from you because you're under 
underutilized, understaffed, whatever, um, overutilized, I mean, is essentially whatever's happening right this minute. It seems to me, you know, I was just a kid in the 90s, but like 90s, 80s, 70s, the news, when you like go back and look at like the Internet archives or back then was way more. It wasn't perfect, but it was way more about like analysis and less about like what just happened. Like you could be fooled. Like if you go on Robin Hood, they have articles that are supposed to be like hard hitting analysis related to stock picking or whatever. But I think they fall into the same trap where it's just whatever's recent. It's not based on broader trends across months or years. It's based on whatever happened yesterday. Like so-and-so dumped a thousand shares of their or a million shares of Microsoft. Therefore, you should do this. Which, I, I don't know. It just leaves me feeling empty. There's just not a lot of long-term analysis. It's like there are facts that happen now. And the, the previous article we talked about mentioned this, um, the, what's it, the avoid news towards a healthy news diet, right? He doesn't say completely cut out news. I mean, he says that he's, it's a diet. And I think you touched upon it. With 24-7, you don't have the ability, you don't have the luxury of sitting back, reflecting on it, and figuring out, one, is this is this a good thing to report on? And two, can we make it more impactful to our audience? No, you're just flying by the seat of your pants and you're just putting it out there as soon as you get it, right? Um, exactly. But I got, I got in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, let me, let me finish this thought. In the sure. 70s, 80s, and 90s, it would, news was not 24 seven. It would be an hour maybe at the end of the day. So they had, basically 24 hours or actually 23 hours to gather all these news articles and news and facts and stories together, parse out the ones that maybe aren't relevant to their viewers or they didn't deem relevant to their viewers and do actual analysis on it. Um, and they don't have the luxury now to do that because if you're not the first, then you're last. And that means a cost in viewership. Oh man, you're you're causing all these thoughts to spring up in my brain, but uh, <laughs> I I kind of want to dig into this a little bit. The the most surface level thing that you that you reminded me of is I recently watched Poltergeist for the first time. Have you ever seen Poltergeist? I have not seen that movie. So the thing that stuck out to me, you mentioned news used to just be an hour. In Poltergeist, the little girls watching the TV late at night before all the shenanigans, and they actually sign off at like eight or nine o'clock and then the TV is just static for the rest of the night until the morning. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's like, that's wild to me. <laughs> today it'd be filled with all these like enlargement advertisements at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that makes me think of is, and I don't, I don't know where this is. This fits in directly with what you may have been saying, but like, there's also the concept of like agendas and media. It's like when you read or consume a certain type of news, regardless of the source, it's important to understand the agenda that the source has. And like we simplify it a lot to like left versus right, but I think it goes beyond that. 
And so one thing I've really been thinking a lot about recently is like, when I'm reading something online, what is the agenda? And I'm, you know, I might get into Google to try to understand what the, the conventional leaning of a certain website is, especially if I'm not familiar with it. Of course, the website that's telling me the leaning might have a bias too. So like, I don't know what to make of that. But um, <laughs> essentially where I've landed is I'm very particular about what I read online. Sure, I'm, I'm susceptible to headlines just like everybody else. Um, it's not like anybody reads any articles anyways. They just read headlines. Um, but what I do, what I like to do, or what I've been thinking a lot about is like, I would rather get most, I, I read online mostly for entertainment more than news, but like I'd rather get most of my information or entertainment from independent blogs by individuals or small groups of individuals rather than like big mainstream places for a couple reasons. One, if it's an individual person's blog, yes, that person is susceptible to like, you know, being wrong or misinformation themselves. But I feel like their biases are way more clear to me because essentially it's just their own self-interest to make money for themselves. Sure, they could be a bad operator, but usually they'd be a bad operator to make money for themselves. So like, it's really easy, I think, to see through when they're being disingenuine. And then two, I think the model, particularly for like online news, is so much based on like advertisement that it like it goes back to like being hard to uh, discern what a website's true agenda is a lot of these independent blogs tend to not be advertising driven um so they're not uh, they're not trying to please all these separate advertisers or if they are um if, if they do have like affiliate links or whatever they have like the bare minimum just to make a little money they probably haven't talked to jeff bezos at amazon um just something I've been thinking about. Have you ever thought about that at all? I don't really read a lot of independent blogs. And I'll right. tell you the reason why. Okay. One, I don't read a lot of blogs in general. But two, it puts... I guess I'm lazy in the sense. Yes, it's probably easier to find out what their motivation is if they're just a one-man shop, right? And you uh -huh. can kind of tell their bias easily. But because there's no fact-checking, I have to do my own fact checking. So everything that they write or everything that they say within the blog or the YouTube video, I have to do my own sleuthing. So my I question, can't take anything at face value. What about this? Um, it's just like finding a movie critic like you like. Maybe at first when you find the website, you you come in cautious, untrusting, but like you would think after you read a certain writer on his own blog a couple times, you're going to establish a relationship. You're either going to go in the direction of trust or distrust. So like maybe the first couple times you read like James Clear's blog, for example, the, the author of the, uh, of atomic habits, you might not trust him, but like after you read more and more of his work and you kind of do your homework, make sure he's reputable. However, you decide to do that. You, you kind of develop a sense of trust with this person. Sure, it's a parasocial relationship or whatever, but. I mean, that, yeah, I guess you can. I guess you can establish trust. I mean, it's, it's, kind of, it's the same thing with the news era of Walter Cronkite. Like, oh, he yeah. brought and that's the people to use every night. Right? And there is a level of trust that he gained with the people that he gave the news to his viewers. 
Yeah. But he did have a team with him. I mean, that's the, the that is a difference. He has he had a team. He had a team of fact checkers to see his blind spots. He did. But like, do you think Wired has a team of fact checkers? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know if Wired has a team of fact checkers. Honestly, um, my view of Wired has been dim of late. <laughs> oh, okay. I still subscribe to it, but I think they are also falling into the media trap of negative news. They used to have a lot more articles, featured articles. Anyway, not getting too much into it, but they're more negative. Their articles are more negative these days about technology and the harms. And I think that's good to have that, but there needs to be a balance between that and, you know, articles that are highlighting people that are solving problems rather than just focusing on the problems without any solution. That's why I don't like Six Sigma. Uh, we don't need to go into what Six Sigma is, but I hear you <laughs> on that. Um, what do you think? Are you ready to, you ready to move on? I kind of d- dragged us into the depths on this one, but I, uh, I mean, really all of these are, all of these are really meaty. All of these are really fascinating, but yeah, let's, let's go into the, the next one. It's also about the media, but it's less. Okay, so this article is called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Why Sites Like Gawker Manipulate You. And the author just summarizes three different sources to give a picture of the evolution of press. So the first, we'll just, I'll just go over briefly. He talks about the party press, which is the first part of, you know, with the, with the rise of the printing press and only certain select people that could read. The, the press in this form was more like newsletters. They were for party leaders to give information directly to their party members. And there was limited, they were limited in scope, and they're usually run by maybe one person. Then we get into the rise of the yellow press, and the yellow press are the rise of papers, basically rags, <laughs> where <laughs> people were just trying to get papers sold. So they, they printed headlines with the most startling thing you can think of just to get people's attention so that they would buy that paper. Um, the one-off problem, basically the idea that every day you had to go, you had to go to the street corner and you had to buy a single copy of a newspaper and then read that one. And so if you had five different newspapers, they all wanted to get bought. And so they tried to lure people to buy their paper by giving the most shocking headlines possible. Then that evolved into the modern stable press, which this author references a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. And I think, Michael, I'll let you talk a little bit more about this after I summarize this, this article. But I know that you read that book. So let me just finish summarizing and then you can talk about it. But he talks about the modern stable press. Basically, uh, Adolf Oaks, I think I pronounced his name correctly, 
He's the editor of the New York Times. And this idea that, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do quality of news. And that's how we're going to get people to read our newspaper. So they lowered the price to one cent so that they would beat everybody out in terms of price. So price wouldn't be an issue. But to compete, they wouldn't do the most shocking headlines. They would try to inform their news audience. The idea of what was the decency meant dollars. And then that had its heyday. And now we're in, I guess, a different stage, which is our modern media press landscape which is more or less kind of what the yellow press days were, where everyone's just trying to get views, trying to get views. And so they're trying to use the most shocking headlines possible to get eyeballs on their article. Uh, and that's pretty much what the article is about. I found it really enlightening. Yeah, so um, what? So the, the article's from fs.blog, which is Farnham Street's blog run by Shane Parrish and his team. It's actually, what he's trying to do is take not a summary of Trust Me, I'm Lying, but like an excerpt, because one thing that Ryan Holiday, the author of Trust Me, I'm Lying, uh, talks about in his book, his book's essentially on media manipulation, but one thing he talks about is the history of how press has evolved and it's kind of become more manipulative with time naturally. Let me zoom out. So like the, the way Ryan Holiday came onto my radar was actually a couple of years ago when he was the marketing director for American Apparel. American Apparel <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. They went under. Yeah. And I, I found him in the whirlwind, the storm that is Tim Ferriss. Like I used to listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast. Um, it's, it, oh my gosh, it is like the best and the worst. It's, he's like cult of personality, super cringe in some ways, but also like super magnetic. Like pretty much every like internet entrepreneur has read or been influenced by the four-hour work week. And honestly, it's kind of slimy. Um, but anyways, Ryan Holiday was very much in that same category. Very manipulative with his marketing. He talks about it a lot in his book. And at first, you know, if I'd come across this book, I probably would have shut it down. Um, never would have given it a chance. But since the, since the American Apparel days, Ryan Holiday's only a couple of years older than me, but since his early days doing that, he's kind of reframed this reality around uh, the stoicism and repackaging like ancient texts of stoicism for like modern readers, which, you know, he, it's a creative way to make money. I mean, he's not necessarily doing anything original. He's just taking Marcus Aurelius and Seneca's thoughts and packaging them in modern Senate structures with a lot of analogies and calling it his own books, whatever, you know, <laughs> good on him for making money. I think he is putting a lot of good stuff out into the world because I, I ascribe to a lot of the tenets of stoicism, but before he started getting into all the stoicism, his very, very first book is kind of an outlier, and it's this book, Trust Me, I'm Lying. Um, he's not the best writer in the world, but I think he's got a lot of really interesting things to say. Essentially, the premise of the book is that media today, because of the modern press era that you talked about before, is just so under-equipped for a bunch of reasons, both financial and otherwise, to give us high quality content media or news that they they overextend themselves and they depend on they depend on sources 
that are much less reputable and they put much less effort into fact checking. So he, he coins this term called trading up the chain. Essentially the way it works is, and it's a strategy he employed when he was at American Apparel was, if you want to get something viral, and the, the sad thing is his book became kind of like a handbook for how to do it. So like a bunch of places read it now. In his latest version, he even tries to, he talks about Trump's election and takes credit for that, but whatever. Um, I think there's still some sense to what he's talking about. Basically, if he was trying to get anything, like he, he recommends, like if you're trying to manipulate the media, no one should manipulate the media. But if you're trying to, Basically, they don't have enough time to vet anything. So what you do is you write the article you want to have written. You send it to a, a less reputable blog or a blogger who's less popular. Um, maybe just a solo guy shop, someone who doesn't have the resources to do fact-checking. They're like, oh, shit, you gave me a whole article. Looks good to me. I'm just going to publish it. And then the reason you picked that blog is because you know that blog has a tendency or a penchant for showing up in like Huffington Post, New York. And then someone from Huffington Post, New York, reaches it out to that blogger, picks it up. And then before you know it, um, the local news in New York, liking Huffington Post, picks up from that Huffington Post. And then, and then you send a calculated email from an anonymous email address to like LA's cable news saying, hey, tip, did you see this, the thing that they're reporting about in New York? And then before you know it, different cable news outlets and big markets are picking up your story and it just continues to spread until it's on the front page of reddit which is like the holy grail these days <laughs> and that is at once so fascinating to me and also terrifying and also seems to explain why things are so not that terrible is not the word i would use but like so empty in the news yeah because it's just it just is recycled and i think it just comes back to the whole it's the bottom line where's the money the money is getting viewers how do you get viewers you get viewers by making sure that you're the first to report on something right yeah so like when, when i'm starting to write for my blog for example which is something i'm just dipping my toe in i think like do I want, I obviously don't want to become like that. Is there a path to success without doing that? Like, sure, I think it depends a little bit on what your definition of success looks like, but like it, it almost, it, 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 it almost removes some of my hope. I mean, I also think that, you know, when everybody goes in one direction, it leaves a vacuum of opportunity. So I think there's like space on the internet for there to be players who are acting in good faith and putting out good stuff. I mean, they say in, I think it's from MIT's school of journalism. There's that professor who would always say, if it doesn't spread, it's dead. Like, is there a way to find quality stuff? And then is there a way to influence its spread to get more of the good stuff out there, essentially? I think there is. That's a good question. I mean, actually, a lot of the thoughts that I had on these articles, all three of these articles was, okay, this is the state we're in right now. I don't think anyone wants our news to be super negative. I don't think anyone wants our news to be fluffy. I think we want the type of news and journalism that we had 
that will inform us and give us really good analysis of things that are happening in our world. So how do we do that, especially where we are right now? I mean, Can I pitch something? Yeah, go ahead. So everyone likes to talk about how the answer to fixing the media these days is basically just taking Facebook or Twitter and tweaking them so that there's less misinformation, whether that's fixing it through the algorithm or through censoring. I think the answer is changing the framework or the paradigm with which we interact with stuff on social media. Basically, right now it's very concretely tied to our feelings, which which means like, I mean, it's great that you can like be surprised or angry or sad or happy at Facebook posts, but really what they're doing is they're just trying to figure out which posts elicit the most angry or sad reactions so they can manipulate that and promote those posts more. I wonder if we could take we could take the way we react to posts online and abstract it away from our emotions, almost like obfuscate it so that articles get rewarded based on how good, not good, like happy, but like just how good they are. Like how hearty, like if it's a meal, like how healthy it is for you or how satisfying it is. You know what I mean? So did this, did this article make you think Did this, did it provide insight that you otherwise would not have been able to glean or did it provide an analysis that you thought was enlightening? Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't, not every article has to be super duper deep. I get there's room for the 140 characters or whatever, but like (laughs) basically like, is it not, is it, is it not like, brain smut that's just not going to make anything any better. I don't know. Um, So that kind of ties into what's going on in society these days. I just think the answer, I think there is a problem and I think the answer, I think we're looking for the answer in all the wrong places, at least the, the way it's being reported on the media. And maybe that's because the media benefits from it being structured the way it is and they're afraid that if it changes they won't benefit, but I really think there's something to changing. I think they can learn to adapt. The other thing. So the other thing that I found really interesting about uh, the article that the trust, the trust me online and the history of it was that when you had a, so in the modern stable press, they talk about how they were able to be profitable. Paper, paper articles were able to be paper, newspapers were able to be profitable by delivering good content is because they had subscriptions right and with that subscription you get content that isn't cherry-picked by you personally to reinforce your bubble or your perspective but a varying smorgasbord of perspectives and news media articles that maybe challenge the way you think or challenge the way that you view the world, but that you're paying for it. And so they they were able to allow you to do that. Now the downside is the person that's curating that content can be very biased or narrow-minded. One of the tidbits he said is that newspaper articles at that time were mostly run by rich white men. So most of the articles that they curated were those that were relevant to what they thought were, was relevant. 
right? Right, right. Um, so it was a double-edged sword, is what I'm trying to say. And with modern media, you now have a democratized point of view, so anyone could put out anything, which is great because now you get perspectives from all walks of life, every shape and color. But the downside is now, as consumers, we can decide to just pick certain articles that just reinforce our worldview and we don't have to pay attention to the others because we are now in control which to me seems bad i think there is something to be said about curated content so for example getting a subscribing to the harvard business review right that is you know what their slant is (laughs) or whatever their motivation is you know what niche they have but they're going to deliver you a bunch of articles that maybe some of them don't fit your worldview, but you at least are reading about them. Yep. Whereas versus with the democratization of press and media, now I can just cherry pick whatever reinforces it and I can be in a silo little bubble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The barrier of entry is so low that there's also a lot of general, there's like, a lot of media created by the general person now. And I, I, this will be the third podcast in a row where I say that Medium is a dumpster fire. Medium is a great example of what happens when you let everybody write. I mean, it's, it, it, okay, there's a positive, right? The positive is that there are, everybody now has a voice, whereas it's before it was the rich white man has the voice and they're the ones that get to dictate what we view in the world, right? Well, Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but like, what if, what if I'm a bad actor and I go on there and I write something that's intentionally controversial that I do not believe, but that I know will stir the pot enough to get views, clicks, and basically pad my pockets? Yeah. I sure. think I think that's the risk, uh, as I see it under the current model. Um, so I I see it on Twitter too. Like when I see something that's. This strikes me as controversial. Usually it's a comment on a tweet. Sometimes I'll just search for it, uh, the the exact same text of that tweet, and I will see it repeated by what look like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten accounts that are real. And to me, that, I mean, to me, that just tells me that there's bots out there. And it's so hard to differentiate what's real from what's not real on some of these platforms. So you gave, Michael, a little bit ago before I went down this rabbit hole, sorry. It's you okay. gave an idea of what you think would be a solution to this situation we're in. The solution to the problem of poor news or press, negative news, press. Uh, and you said that it was to change the algorithm. So instead of going off of emotions, you're going off of how informative it was to a reader or how probing the analysis was, correct? Yeah. So I've thought about this and a lot of it is, okay, how do we break this news media cycle? How do we you know, go back to decency <laughs> in a sense? Yep. And, and honestly... I mean, I think 
for me, mulling over this question, it became an idea of how do we do anything in a capitalist society if we don't want something? We vote with our money. But in this case, we vote with our views. Yeah, vote with our attention. Our attention, yeah. We vote with our attention. So if you're watching CNN 24-7 and you're complaining about how negative the news media is, then that's the problem right there. You are, you as a consumer are making that choice to consume negative news media. You just have to, I guess it just comes down to the individual or just a collective society, us as viewers, where we put our attention, where we put our eyeballs. If we want, if you want a news media cycle that is more balanced, that is more investigative, investigatory <laughs> investigative uh, then we need to seek those out or seek out those outlets or those blogs and give our attention to those places but that does require us to be cognizant of the fact that we are taking being taken advantage of by our media sources you know what uh I didn't intend on us to go down this path of like questioning everything, but like it, it, it really makes me mad. Like these people that are supposed to be informing us are manip are, are you weaponizing that against us? There are sensibilities and there's really no difference these days from between news and marketing. Well, are they weaponizing it against us or are they just giving us what we want? That was something that the Freakonomics podcast mentioned is that you know we create this re this negative news cycle that reinforces itself because we can't pull ourselves away okay i would say to that at the most surface level i want it but it's not what good it's not what good what's good for me if i just eat cookies all the time because i want them i'm not going to get a good result you know it's like drinking pepsi versus drinking coke if I take one sip of Pepsi, it's great. But if I drink a whole can, I will hate it. Whereas Coke, you know, and this isn't a Coke advertisement. <laughs> it's more enjoyable over the long term. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point. And I mean, every individual knows what's best for them. But for me, it's not it's not these like dopamine hits. I mean, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, that's why I don't, I will sparsely consume the news or I will be very particular about which curated news source I pay attention to. Yeah. And I, and I also, I, I do think that there has to be some curation involved. Michael, I think you kind of brought it because you can have a lot of, you can have bad actors, right? If it's completely democratized, one of them, one of the downsides is if it's not curated, then you're just going to pick articles that cater to you and your world perspective, and you're just going to silo yourself, right? You'll never be exposed to something that's not. Yep, confirmation not, bias. Yeah, you'll have confirmation bias. Um, but then also, if you don't have a curation of 
news, then you're just going to get a bunch of, a boatload of crap, <laughs> I guess, like medium, right? Yeah, honestly, I'm okay with curation, but I'm not okay with censorship. I think there's a fine line between the two. I agree. I agree. I that 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 is very Yeah. So maybe it, it's just a, you just got to do a smorgasbord of curated news sources. It actually goes back to your podcast episode why is the US media so negative? At the very very end they talk about how it varies from country to country, the mm-hmm. negative bias or whatever. And they talk about how in China pretty much the Chinese government is in charge of everything from a media perspective, whether it's social media or otherwise. Uh, And so as a result, they have a lot of censorship, a lot of curation, I guess, uh, if you want to be uncharitable. And then in the U.S., in, in general, to this point in history, the government has not interfered very much with what's on social media in particular, and certainly not the press because of freedom of the press and whatnot. Social media is a little more gray. But generally, if you take it on a party by party basis, um, you know, not saying which is right or which is wrong, but the left tends to favor preventing misinformation and the right tends to favor preventing censorship. And even they like I, I know both the parties are broken, but like even they can't find a happy medium no. to what the answer should be. And I think that just speaks to the complexity of the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a complex problem. We're not gonna we're not gonna solve it by just talking about it in an hour podcast. <laughs> you know what else is an interesting problem? <laughs> yes, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, knowing how to store your fruits and veggies so they will last as long as possible. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You want, Michael you, you want me to, to tell a... you more, Robert? Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually curious. This is. This is relevant. Yeah. So your second article that you selected for us was called How to Keep Your Produce Produce <laughs> Three Two One. How to Keep Your Produce Fresh for Weeks. Hint, it's not always in the fridge. It's not always in the icebox. So if I just run through a quick summary of this, the author's whole purpose behind writing this article is to encourage people to minimize food waste. You know, make your which makes sense. You want your food to go longer so you don't have to go to the grocery store as much. Um, I would say because it's cold outside, but others would say because of the cost. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So the strategy boils down to a couple different things. It boils down to like what food you select, how you select the food you select, and then um, storage, how you store the food. So his his or her, I think it might be a, a woman who wrote it. The person's recommendation is, select the freshest stuff first. So generally it's going to be freshest if if we're talking fruits and vegetables, if it's got a rich color and it doesn't have soft spots. There's a little more nuance to it than that, um, but that's the gist. And then they spend the the bulk of the article, probably the remaining 80% talking about different ways to store food to make it go longer. And they break it down into three different categories, which are temperature, ethylene, and airflow. Um, couple things on that temperature i think is pretty obvious we think of the refrigerator we think of cold but the things that i didn't think about before were ethylene and airflow so i'm going to talk a little bit about what they say about that so ethylene what they're referring to is some fruits and vegetables emit this gas and 
obviously, now you don't, I don't think it smells like anything. You can't see it, so you wouldn't be aware of it. But essentially, some fruits and vegetables give this off, and some are susceptible to it. So when they are near it, it impacts how long they stay fresh. So it influences how you want to store things relative to each other in your fridge, on your counter, in your cupboard. The other thing is uh, the airflow. Some fruits and veggies like to be surrounded by natural air and some benefit from being in like a plastic bag. Um, unless we're talking about vacuum sealed food where everything likes to be in the bag. Absence. <laughs> <laughs> then they go on to say, they go through a bunch of categories relating to particulars of foods. I'm not going to hit every single thing, but I'll hit a couple highlights. So things like potatoes and yams, um, particularly like russet potatoes, they don't like to be refrigerated. To me, that wasn't groundbreaking. I already knew that. Um, but a couple other details I didn't think about were cool, dry place, high humidity, relatively speaking. They like airflow. So like even if your potatoes are in a plastic bag that's perforated, you should take them out. And you want to keep them away from ethylene-emitting foods. You can even store them in your wine fridge if you want, which I thought was really interesting because wine and potatoes like about the same kind of climate. Alternatively, like if I'm just staying on the theme of like things that like to be stored outside of the fridge, the one that was most surprising to me was onions and garlic. Onions and garlic do not like to be stored in cold temperatures, but you want to make sure you keep them far away from your potatoes because they give off that gas that potatoes do not like. So <laughs> keep them on opposite ends of the cupboard. Then everything else pretty much falls into like a couple different categories. Other roots, cabbage, apples, broccoli, all that kind of stuff, they like to go in the fridge and they like to be in plastic bags. Generally, you want to store them dry. You don't want to wash them and then put them in the fridge because the water and the moisture is going to make them rot more quickly. Uh, and they go on to say, don't believe the Nancy Meyer movies. These are things like something's got to give what women want. Despite seeing apples in a bowl on the counter, apples like to be in the fridge. <laughs> don't believe it don't believe the lies meet hashtag media hashtag fake news um and then alternatively uh oranges citruses they like to be on the counter they don't necessarily have to be but they they do fine in the fridge too but the author argues that the benefit of having them on the counter other than the fact that they just look nice is it's going to remind you to eat them whereas if you leave them in the fridge you might forget the oranges in there. And the, no, despite them lasting longer, you're just not going to eat them. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a couple other specifics, but I think those were the high points. So wh why did you pick this one? Why, why did it resonate <laughs> with you? Well, so I think it was like a year ago that I ran across an article on how to, something similar to this, basically, how to make your produce last longer. And at the time, I was having a hard time keeping produce viable because I was incorporating a lot of vegetables in my diet, a lot of fruits. I was cutting back on red meat and I was really frustrated because I would go on Sunday to the grocery store and they would all be rotten by Wednesday <laughs> and it really <laughs> frustrated me. I was like, why is this happening? And that's one of the reasons why I stumbled upon this article. Okay. And then I started thinking more on okay, maybe some vegetables, how do we, you know, how do you have produce and imitate their natural environment so that they don't start rotting so quickly? Huh. 
That's such an interesting way to think about it. Um, Can I ask you a question? Sure. So you don't have to go through everything, but like what were two or three things that you were doing wrong that you've changed since you learned this, learned about this stuff? Plastic bags. Like uh, keeping things in plastic bags. So, you know, you go to the grocery store and you get the produce and you put it in a plastic bag and you bring it home. Right. And a lot of people were just like, okay, we'll just keep it in the plastic bag. That is wrong. Don't do that unless like it's it's lettuce. So so mushrooms in particular are really bad about this because it keeps the moisture in and it just mushrooms grow more mushrooms, but just not the mushrooms that you want to eat. Huh. That's what I was finding. So it's actually for me, they last longer in the fridge if you take them out of that plastic container and you kind of let them be loose. Because when they're in contact with each other, the moisture just kind of sits in there and it's in a, it's a perfect environment for mold or other mushrooms to grow in them, but mushrooms you don't want to eat. Shit. So like, do you, I'm curious about this. Do you just dump your mushrooms in the drawer now or do you, how do you do it? Well, I have these, you can actually buy them on, I think Amazon, but they're mesh. They're just mesh bags. So they keep the they keep the mushrooms loose and they provide some nice airflow around them. Um, so you can store them loosely. Okay, yeah. I think that'll be the last tagline in our the podcast title. It'll be on the media and mushroom bags. <laughs> Medium and mushroom bags. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I gotta say the thing that I, I don't know that I'm interested in going and changing my whole life around this particular problem. Um, but I'm definitely going to store my onions differently and my garlic differently based on what I learned from this. I had no idea. Oh, but keep in mind with the onions, I would still store them in the fridge. Tell me more. The reason why is if you store them in the fridge, when you cut them, this, they won't make you tear up as badly. If you store them at room temperature and you start cutting them, man, it's really bad. Oh, you know what? I've noticed that sometimes they make my eyes tear up and sometimes they don't. And I think you just uncovered it. I think they make my eyes tear up when I, when I get, when I start cooking immediately after I get home from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause that means they've had, they've been out. They've had time to warm up. Whereas if I just go to the grocery store and I don't cook immediately, which I do about half the time, they're cold. Oh my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> I did, you know, I thought this was potentially the light, least life changing of these articles, but wow. <laughs> also, cilantro. Okay. Okay. So I found well, this out, which is not in this article, but I'll, I'll do one more. So with yeah. cilantro, I was always annoyed because I'd get back and it'd be rotten, like the leaves would get rotten. So what I found out is what you want to do is you, you treat them like flowers. If you want them to last longer, take them out of the plastic bag, un, untie them. And then stick them in a little bit of water in the fridge and it'll keep the leaves kind of the, the leaves nicer for longer. Huh. Because it'll drop that water through them. So it, as it's, as it's about the leaves are giving off, they're evaporating water, right? So you replenish it from the stem and you keep it in the fridge, obviously to, to prevent it from like, some of the other nefarious bacteria from growing too quickly, but yeah, it, it's almost like 
I didn't even have, I didn't know any of these facts, but like, I mean, I knew there was that little like humidity control in the drawers in the fridge that I just figured did nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I, it's like I was blind and now I can see, I have like a whole framework to think about this stuff now. And I didn't, I, I wasn't even particularly interested in this article coming into this conversation, but hearing your lived experience makes me think yeah. like the mushroom thing's not in the article, I don't think, or maybe I missed it, but. No, it's not in the article, but this, this is just like things that I've learned because oh, I, I found this article. Dropped on me. Oh yeah. 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 You, it's like you left it out of the trailer. <laughs> uh cool well i could keep going on and on but uh i think we'll we'll stop there and we'll okay. have the we'll have our listeners read these articles because they are very interesting and for some light reading you can do the how to store your produce <laughs> yeah so it, you know, just like always we'll put there we'll put the article links in the show notes you got anything uh you want to say before we wrap it up here I'm glad everyone stuck stuck with us for three episodes. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed this a lot. Michael, yeah, it's great talking to you and, and talking about these things. These are, these are fascinating articles to talk about, and it's really interesting to dissect and probe them with you. Yeah. Like, the part I enjoy most about it is... The, the part where I just get to poke holes or interrogate all your articles. <laughs> Some of them, I mean, most of them don't have that many holes, but like, it's just, it's one thing to just take it at face value. It's another thing to like, take it out of its bag and just play with it in my hands and get a feel for it and really understand it. And I feel like, you know, I read a lot of stuff online. Most of it's just pop culture nonsense or whatever, but I don't really engage with it in quite this way unless I'm going to be writing about it on my blog or something. So mm-hmm. it's just, a, it's like, it's something fun for us to do together, but it's also just like a different way to get like my brain thinking. And, and like, sure. Like one of the articles tonight was about produce. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, it's practical, practical. And it's interesting, but like, it makes me wonder what other things are out there that are like so obvious in, in my could you know basically potentials for improvement in my day-to-day life that i would never even think about for sure articles like like that that are what's up i like that analogy take it out and play with it yeah it's articles like that fruit one are not on the cover of fox news or cnn (laughs) but you know that would that that one's made the biggest impact on me tonight i think and so it makes you wonder what the algorithm would look like to get that up there. Well, you give it a plus one for informative. Yeah, I and dig it. And thought provoking. All right. Cool. Well, yeah. I think this wraps up episode three. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll second what you said before, Robert. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm not sure exactly how long this will be once we we edit it, but it will be long once again. <laughs> um, we, This has been the Variety Show with Michael and Robert. We would really, really, really appreciate it if you go on to your podcast platform of preference and leave us a review. It makes a big difference. And if you've got any feedback for us, you can reach out to us through the Anchor app. They've got this like nifty voicemail functionality. 
where we could play it on the next episode or a future episode. And then we also have a Twitter at Variety Show Pod. Lucky that handle wasn't taken. Where mm-hmm. we'll post the episodes, and so you can engage on us however you'd like on there. Leave us a comment. Leave us some hate mail. Leave us some spam. Whatever, we'll take it. Good. All right. So bye, folks. Bye all. Till next time. Till next time. Let's go. Hey, everybody. One quick thought before we exit. Right after the outro music that you're used to hearing at this point, if you've joined us here before, Robert and I are going to stay on the line for our after party of sorts, where we talk about this episode in a meta sense. What worked? What didn't work? What would we like to do in the future? Stick around if you're interested. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.